You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of applied economics at the University of Minnesota, where he is also the director of the Center for International Food and Agricultural Policy. Holding a PhD in applied economics from Cornell University, his research focuses on agricultural economics and applied econometrics, including agricultural value chains, risk and uncertainty, and the consequences of high and volatile food prices. His latest book is titled Doing Economics, What You Should Have Learned in Grad School But Didn't. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Dr. Belmar. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how you got into economics. Yeah, so my my full set of titles is I'm Distinguished McKnight University Professor, Distinguished University Teaching Professor, and Northrop Professor of the University of Minnesota in the Department of Applied Economics. And um, I got into economics, uh, this was quite a long time ago, it was, it was over almost 25 years ago at this point, I was um, an undergraduate student in philosophy at the University of Montreal. And um, after about a year of studying philosophy, I asked myself, I think a question that most philosophy undergraduates ask themselves at some point, which is what am I going to do with this degree once I'm done? And um, I wasn't sure about philosophy anymore. And and I had just recently written an article for the new the, the, the university's newspaper about a tenure case that had gone south in the Department of Economics. And I kind of looked at the landscape of all the programs I could transfer to, and I decided to turn my philosophy um, studies into a minor and then declare a major in economics. And the rest is history, as they say. Mark Andreessen once said, software is eating the world. And you know that's true. But do you really understand software? I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science, a software developer, and a programming book author. And I want to explain software to you. And I'm Rebecca Kopeck. For the purpose of this podcast, I'm your gateway into the world of software. Each week, I ask David a software-related technical question, and we have an in-depth discussion about the topic and the stories behind it. Together, we're going to help you understand the digital technology that powers your life. And sometimes we'll even take a detour into computing history and deeper topics like artificial intelligence. So join us each week for 20 minutes of software enlightenment to make you a more knowledgeable user and consumer. Okay, um, so your latest book is titled Doing Economics, What You Should Have Learned in Grad School But Didn't. So tell us a bit about what led to your decision to write this book and who it's intended for. Yeah, I think, you know, it, there are many stories that I can tell about how this book came about, but the quickest or the shortest story I could tell is probably what I explained in the introduction, which is um, in 2018, I went to Rome for some something at the FAO. I forget exactly what it was. And one night over drinks, I was having uh, drinks with my colleague, Sara Sevastano, who's at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, uh, one of the three Rome-based development agencies. And Sara had just recently become director of impact evaluation at uh, EFAD. And she had found that the papers that were kind of produced by economists in her shop were not always written 
2010 about you know, how to structure a paper and how to you know what to include in an introduction or in a conclusion. Um, why don't you take that and write something about how people should write papers? And um, then that became a consulting contract for EFAD. I wrote this working paper, which is still floating out there, titled How to Write Papers in Applied Economics, I think the title was. And when COVID hit, I realized that that working paper, that, that kind of thing that came out of a consulting contract for a UN agency would work really well as a chapter in a book dedicated to kind of like, you know, doing economics as an early career researcher or as, or as a professional researcher, I should say. Um, and, and so I used that as kind of like the demo chapter in my book proposal that I sent to a bunch of presses. And that's what, uh, that's what I used to sell the book basically. And of course I articulated kind of other chapters, what they would be about, but that's how it came about. Another story that I could tell is I'm a first generation college student. Neither one of my parents went to college. And so I've consistently had to figure out the rules of the game ever since I started, you know, going to, to college. Um, and it gets really tiring, right? Because you sink valuable time and resources in figuring out what the norms, what the mores are. Um, and I know what it's like, you know, for people who are first timers in grad school as well. Um, and I thought, well, if I can save those people some time by, by having them focus on things more productive than having to figure out, well, how do you write a referee report? And what does this decision mean by an editor? And how do editors think about kind of getting reviewers and so on? So if I could save those people some time, that'd truly be wonderful. And then on the on the other hand, if I can save, you know, even senior economists who have been doing this for a while, who have figured out those rules for themselves, if I could save them the time of having to kind of tell their students and younger colleagues the same thing over and over, often in writing, right? You write the same email over and over because like someone, you know, every other year you'll have a student who's like, hey, how do I write a referee report? Um, so if I can save people some time by kind of like providing kind of a, couching on paper kind of those those what is really part of the hidden curriculum in many cases in, in the, this profession of ours i thought this would be greatly valuable and that's what kind of led me to writing this so if i understand it correctly um the premise of the book is sort of based on the fact that graduate schools typically equip economists with the necessary technical expertise but fail to adequately prepare students to navigate the practical aspects of a career in academia so can you tell us a bit more about what these tools needed for doing economics are and why they're important to succeed as an economist as opposed to just the technical knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to tell you that success in this profession is determined only by the quality of your ideas and kind of like your technical skills in general. That is patently untrue. I mean, there is so much in how you kind of market yourself and how you present yourself and how you just kind of behave in you know in in the cultural climate of the profession that is economics um that drives how much you'll be successful that that you know and that stuff unfortunately is not taught in graduate programs necessarily it's stuff that you kind of absorb by kind of looking at how others behave by how what they say what they don't say um you kind of absorb a little bit of it when you talk to your advisors about things that are not necessarily that, right? You'll say, well, oh, you know, I, I got this referee report on this paper that I submitted. And then, you know, your advisor might say, well, you know, you can safely dismiss this or this, you know, is code for something else. And so, yeah, that stuff is not taught. And so if you can somehow clarify this for people who, are, who do not have access to that information to begin with, uh, say, because, you know, the advisor that they have or the professors that they deal with might not have been in grad school for a long time, right? Uh, and so they might not, like the, the, 
the climate or the profession might have moved on. Uh, and so they're not getting access to that information kind of on a timely basis. So if you can kind of somehow bring that knowledge to people, I think there's a great, there's a great deal in providing kind of that service. Yeah. Um, so in the book, you go over sort of six broad categories, um, including writing papers, giving talks, advising students, peer review, doing service, finding funding. Um, yeah, those six. Um, so you acknowledge that aspects of these skills are changing over time, um, noting that, quote, there was a time when a social scientist could spend her whole career without having to get grants to fund her work. So in your view, how have the practical tools necessary to function as an economist in academia changed over time? And how do you think the necessary skill set will look in the future? For example, are there are, are any of these six tools, um, are there any of these six tools that you predict will become more important over time or vice versa? That's a really good question. So let me let me answer in two parts. First, by looking kind of back, and then by then by trying to look forward. Um, looking back, I mean things have changed hugely just in my lifetime. I remember in um, I was writing my master's thesis at the University of Montreal in ninety nine two thousand, and I remember. And you'll you know this will make you think that I'm incredibly ancient, probably. But I remember wanting to read uh, a series of articles because my, you know, my thesis was on a given topic. It was on my on, on credit rationing, and I wanted to read about you know credit rationing and development. And I had kind of a reading list that had been given to me by one of my professors, and all I had was references. And and so if I wanted to read, so one of the articles that I read was Stiglitz and Weiss, 1981, in the AER. And in order to do that, what I had to do was go physically in the library, go in the stacks, find the 1980, 1981 volume of the AER, bring it to the copy center at the library, tell the guy who worked there, I need pages, you know, what have you, 681 to 720, for instance, photocopied. Uh, and so I would bring a stack of these kind of issues of various journals to that copy center. And I'd say, I need the following articles. And the guy would say, all right, you know, come back in 90 minutes. Uh, and I would come back in 90 minutes with, you know, the cash that I had to pay for those photocopies. It wasn't super expensive. It was usually on the order of about $10, uh, probably less than that, in fact. But there was this, this massive transaction cost, right, relative to how things are operating today in the sense that, you know, you had to go physically to the library, get those things out of the stacks, bring them to the copy center, wait, and so on. Um, today, you can do that at the click of a button. I mean, I was just working on a revise and resubmit before we started talking today. And there was a number of articles that I wanted to consult. And I'm at home, right? So I, I don't have kind of direct access to the library collection at my university. But I would still go to the page of those articles that I wanted to read. And there's kind of this extension that I have in my browser that is reload as a University of Minnesota web page. And all I need to do is log in with my NetID. And you can access articles like that almost in the blink of an eye, right, with the click of a mouse. And so that's one of those things that has changed tremendously. Another thing is just the use of the internet in general, um, more broadly, whether to kind of look for information, to have a conversation with other researchers. This was, you know, back, as I said, when I started out in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was no such thing as social media. Conversations between researchers still took place at conferences or via correspondence, whether the correspondence was over email or paper at the time was, you know, depending on, on who you talk to. Um, but now the conversation is occurring at the level of social media. There's a lot of the conversation between scientists, not just economists, that takes place on Twitter, for instance, right? And in the book, and I think it's in chapter six of the book, 
I go into how social media now kind of is the place where a lot of the conversation between researchers takes place. So things have changed a whole lot, I think, mainly as a response to, uh, to the internet. Now, looking to the future, it's a little bit difficult for me. I mean, any prediction will almost be wrong uh, de facto out of the gate, but I'm trying to kind of envision how things would change. I think one of the things that is coming to us is the fact that we will probably see a lot more open access research because um, increasing numbers of donors and funders of research now ask you to kind of set aside some funds for open access publishing. So if you, there's a, in my area of development, there are a number of funders who will say, um, this has got whatever you produce out of this has got to be published open access because it is our philosophy that you know people all over the world should access this knowledge for free, and so that means you have to kind of request money for that. Um, and with conversations I've had with publishers as a journal editor, what I hear over and over is you know in twenty years there's not going to be this kind of closed access. Everything is going to be open access, and authors are going to have to pay for it. And when I ask, well how are we going to have to pay for this? Because typically open access is really expensive. It's on the order of twenty-five dollars to $3,500 per article. Um, what I'm told is, well, the budget that your library typically takes to kind of subscribe to these big packages and collections of journals is simply going to go to academics so that they can pay for open access for their work. And I'm certainly hoping that that's true. I think it's it's a much better model than the current closed model that we have. Um, I just wonder how much of the pass through we're going to see. I just wonder how much of the dollars that currently go to subscribing to stuff by libraries is actually going to go to academics research accounts for open access publishing like that. That is one thing that I anticipate will happen in the in the relatively you know short run. Okay. Um, and what do you think about funding, um, both past and, and, and future? So you talk uh, quite a bit in the book about finding funding. Um, so in, in your view, has this um, gotten easier for economists um, over the past few decades um, or since you've been in the game? Um, and do you think this is getting easier or more difficult with the advent of the internet and increased competition? I can't tell you for certain whether it's gotten more difficult or whether it's gotten easier. I think one factor that makes um, that has made funding for economists easier is that economists have um, are seen very, very favorably by policymakers, by donors, by the public in general, uh, to the point where Andrew Gelman, who's a statistician, wrote that his view was that economists are kind of like in fashion right now, like uh, I think Freudian psychotherapists were in the 1950s in the sense that you know, you, back then, Freudian psychotherapists could explain everything with their model. And I think Gelman sees us as being able to explain everything with our models or, or our econometric findings or what have you. Um, so while this lasts, right, while economists have favor with the public and with taxpayers and with governments and with donors, with policymakers, I think it's relatively easier to get funding because, you know, people, I think people in positions of kind of holding the purse strings kind of know that economists have a certain set of methods that can kind of get to specific knowledge and in, in very kind of clear um, and, and very clear and kind of like kind of, kind of well-identified ways, if I may use kind of the, the causal inference terminology. Um, that said, as you rightly point out, right, there are many more economists nowadays as there were in just even in the late 90s. Um, and so you, you face kind of increased competition, increased pressure. 
Uh, and it's not clear that the amount of resources available has kept pace with that. So I don't know what on the net the effect has been. I suspect that it's slightly more difficult nowadays, um, that, that the rate at which the number of economists has grown is higher than the rate at which the, the available funding has grown. Okay. Um, so in your experience, is there a reason why this stark disparity um, between what students learn um, and what they need to know to do economics exists? And do you believe that there are any graduate programs, schools, or approaches that you've come across um, that really do teach students what they quote unquote should have learned in grad school? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why there's this disparity between, you know, how you actually do this job and what you get taught in grad school, there are several factors there. But I think one kind of clear factor is, look, there's only 24 hours in a day. We will equip you with the technical stuff, with, you know, the theoretical and empirical knowledge you need to go and generate your own research and your own cutting edge research. The rest will leave up to you, right? It's already kind of pretty jam-packed because... Typically, in, in a PhD program, you will spend the first two years in pretty hardcore coursework, and that might even spill over into your third year. Um, and it's it's not necessarily common to have something like a second-year paper where you start doing research in your second year. Um, so I think there's a constraint in the sense that you know we can't have programs where you have three years of coursework or four years of coursework. Are things changing? I can tell you that in our own program, things certainly are changing. I mean, I used to teach the second year paper. I taught the second year paper seminar, which is a, a two seminar, two course sequence. It lasts a year. I taught that for six years. And in that, I was already teaching a lot of what's in the book. So the, a lot of the book, especially chapter two, has come from teaching six years worth of second year paper. Um, and I'm teaching the first year seminar next year, which is um, first year graduate seminar. And I will incorporate a lot of what's in the book in that class. So I can tell you that it's it's changing in my own backyard. And I've already heard from colleagues who said, I've already ordered you know five copies of your book because all the graduate students in our first year next year are going to go through the book as part of this you know grad seminar. Right. Um, so as someone who works and teaches graduate economics yourself, um, what advice would you give or, or can you recommend any reforms to the way that graduate programs in economics are run? Um, any flaws that you commonly see um, so that they're, they, they better prepare students to handle the practical side of working in academia? Yes. And I think I, I allude to that directly in the introduction when I say that when I started out, theory had pride of place. When I started out, if you wanted to do empirical work, you were greatly limited by the data that were available. This was especially true if you wanted to do development um, because this was at a time when, you know, the World Bank had started collecting systematic surveys. IFPRI had already started as well, but it wasn't as widespread as it is now. And we didn't have kind of all these donors who were willing to give money to go do randomized control trials, right? So when I started my PhD in 2001, you know, randomized control trials were not kind of a, uh, we're not something that people discussed outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts, I don't think. And so nowadays, the, it, it, the, the discipline has taken a turn that is much more empirical than it used to be. Uh, and yet, if you look at what is being taught in graduate programs, the emphasis is still very, very heavily on theory. Uh, econometrics is one of those things you learn. You may learn causal inference methods as part of your field courses. It might be, you know, it might be part of your econometric sequence, but 
what is being taught in graduate programs has not kept pace with what the field is becoming or the discipline is becoming, which is much more empirical. And, um, and so if there's kind of a need for improvement, it's right there. Uh, problem is, right, you have, you face very high costs to reforming any kind of um, education program in the sense that you need to form a committee. People need to kind of discuss what they want to see. You have entrenched interests, right? So you have these professors who have taught in the theory sequence, either micro or macro for years and years. And if you take that away from them, uh, they're not gonna be happy, right? And so then the question becomes, well, are we going to kind of add a whole kind of like layer of, of courses in applied work? Um, or and Because like, as I said, there's only 24 hours in a day, people are already taking two full years of coursework, maybe three. Um, so I, I Things are not changing or they're changing only very slowly for good reasons. I mean, for kind of like there's there's institutional inertia in universities, just as there is in government, just as there is in, in the private sector as well, when a hierarchy gets big enough, right? Those, you know, those Leviathans can't turn on a dime. Yeah. Um, and so this book is specifically um, obviously written in the context of economics, but uh, you touch on how some of the advice and information contained within the book could be applicable to social scientists more broadly. So in your estimation, how does the disparity between what students are taught in graduate level programs and the practical skills that enable them to flourish um, that you've identified uh, exist across disciplines? And if so, why are resources on how to address this disparity so limited? Yeah, I think there is a hidden curriculum in all disciplines, right? There's there's kind of these unwritten rules of the game in most human endeavors. It's not just kind of academic disciplines. It's if you decide to kind of go into private sector and work in sales, for instance, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that the textbook that you had in your you know, business school classes did not teach you. Um, so I think that's true across disciplines. I like the fact that you bring up the idea that this is applicable to more than just economics. It's true that the title says doing economics, but this was written very much in uh, with my colleagues say, or at least my quantitative colleagues in political science, sociology, criminology, public policy, and business administration, and so on in mind. So this is not written only for economists. There are certain parts that are very kind of quirky, specific to economics. Um, I trust that the people who are in other disciplines will know to separate those parts from what is actually useful to them. Um, now, your question about how can this be addressed in other disciplines, I wouldn't even know where to start uh, because each discipline is kind of so unique into itself. Uh, but I think, you know, starting with just a recognition that there is a, a, a considerable hidden curriculum that we don't need to let students sink or swim and figure it out for themselves. Just make time to kind of organize workshops and even maybe classes. Just It doesn't need to be three credit courses, but it could be a one credit grad seminar that teaches students that stuff and brings everyone up to level, I think would already be a net improvement. Yeah, um, and so if this disparity does exist um, across so many disciplines, um, why are resources on how to address it? Um, so limits, like especially in economics. Um, so you, I mean, this book I think is quite quite new um, as far as I I can see. There are not a lot of resources on this disparity, but, um, especially like sort of a guidebook or a manual on how to um, navigate certain aspects, of, um, certain practical aspects of everyday life and working in academia as an economist. Um, and so, if this disparity does exist and, and it's so transparent, um, uh, and, and you know everyone in the field knows about it, why why are the resources on this so scarce? 
That's a good question. I don't know that it's as transparent and as obvious as you make it out to be. It's transparent and obvious now that we talk about it, right? Um, but I think for the longest time, it was just one of those things that you were expected to learn on your own. And if you couldn't figure it out, well, you just didn't belong, right? Um, and I disagree with that. I think there, you know, <laughs> I can tell you from experience that a lot of people select into academic economics because they have, um, let's just say that social skills and the skills needed to, like, you know, the skills needed to recognize the dogs that didn't bark are not their forte or their comparative advantage. So I think there is certainly a, a great deal of value in kind of addressing those things in naming them and in kind of saying, hey, look, there is there is something lacking here. We need to teach this. We need to recognize that it's there. So I don't know that it's as transparent as you are. Um, how can we start addressing it? Why are there no resources? I think it's because we weren't addressing, we kind of, we didn't really recognize that up until a couple of years ago uh, or up until very recently. And I think, you know, it, Again, it's one of those things where there are no resources because the old school philosophy was, well, you know, back in my day, we had to figure all, all of that out by ourselves and it was it just made us better. Uh, and I think mentalities are changing radically about that. Mentalities are now, uh, if we can spare you having to kind of give all that up or make all these efforts for stuff that is ultimately teachable and not rocket science, we will do it, right? We will teach you that stuff. Um, and so I think I think we're kind of at the right moment in time for this kind of stuff to to kind of for one to take 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 that into consideration more than we used to, and then kind of like teach it. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.